Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 and, uh, to 49. Recall Jesus recently rose from the dead, and Luke 24 is all about how Jesus spent that first resurrection day, or that first Lord's Day with his disciples. And this passage before us is still happening and taking place on that first Easter. So Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word that's given to us this morning. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses, or you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, Christmas is, of course, a wonderful time of year. It's a time for us to enjoy good food. It's a time for us to enjoy good company, as many of us are gathering with friends and and family. It's a time for us to exchange gifts with one another. Christmas also allows us to look forward to the time of year in which there are the fewest hours of sunlight which, if it's able to do that, is probably a worthwhile holiday in itself. Now, as Christians, we know that the most important aspect of Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Christ. But it's broader than that. Christmas isn't just a celebration of the birth of Christ. More significantly, Christmas is a celebration of the humanity of Christ. 
What we're celebrating at Christmas is the fact that God took upon himself flesh and blood, a body and a soul. This is amazing. In this passage, the disciples encounter the humanity of Christ, and Luke tells us that they disbelieved for joy. Another way you could render this is they couldn't believe their eyes. They were so shocked and amazed at the resurrected humanity of Christ, they couldn't believe it. And this is to be our response as we think about God coming in the flesh 2,000 years ago. Now you're probably wondering what this passage has to do with Christmas. Of course, this is not a traditional Christmas passage. However, this passage is all about the humanity of Christ. And therefore, insofar as it is about the humanity of Christ, it is a very fitting passage for us to dwell upon this Christmas morning. In fact, this passage, in this passage, Jesus is seeking to assure his disciples of the good news of his humanity. Jesus is seeking to assure his disciples of the good news of his humanity. Now, as we walk through this passage together, my prayer, my hope is that we also would be encouraged and assured of this same good news of Jesus' humanity. As you know, this passage begins with this statement about these, these two disciples who, uh, who had recently encountered Christ on the Emmaus Road, which we considered last week. And these two disciples returned to Jerusalem to inform the 11 apostles all that, in, in regard to all that they experienced, all that they have, had seen in, in the recent hours. And the 11, they're discussing the events of that day together. And as they're discussing the events of that first Lord's Day, Jesus himself appears before their eyes. Now let's imagine for a moment that you had never read the Gospel of Luke before. In fact, that you don't, you don't know the outcome of this narrative. What would you guess to be the first words out of Jesus' mouth here? Remember, this is the first time Jesus is interacting with the apostles since he was betrayed. Remember what happened in those last moments? Jesus told his apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane to pray that they might not be led into temptation. And how does Jesus find them? Sleeping for sorrow. What happens when Jesus is betrayed and arrested? The disciples scatter. Peter denies them. Now, my expectation might be that Jesus would come with a rebuke. Or Jesus might come and revoke that title of apostle from these men and try to find a better group of guys who are more equipped to take over the mission of building this kingdom. However, this is not at all what Jesus does, is it? What does Jesus say? Peace to you. Peace to you. Now, this is a traditional form of greeting in Judaism, both, both then and now. Sort of like when you meet someone on the streets or in the hallway and say, Hi, how are you? It can be sort of rote. However, when Jesus is employing this traditional greeting, he is infusing it with deep theological significance. 
He's not using it merely as a traditional rote phrase to greet another individual. Now, why do I say this? Well, let's connect this to the Christmas story. So remember back in Luke chapter 2, when we learn about Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, what do the, the heavenly hosts, what do they proclaim at Jesus' birth? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is well pleased. The angels are connecting the birth of Christ with peace between God and his people. Then consider Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, where the Apostle Paul, reflecting upon the life of Christ, says that Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off, meaning the Gentiles, and he came and preached peace to those who were near, the Jews, with the result that we all might have access to God the Father in one spirit. So the Apostle Paul is saying that the mission for Jesus coming into this world was to bring peace. And the result of this peace is free access to God the Father. So when Jesus here is declaring peace over his apostles, what he's doing, he is saying or reminding his apostles that he has accomplished the mission for which he was sent. He has brought peace to the people of God. Now this peace that Jesus is referring to is not a warm, fuzzy feeling that we feel inside. This is objective reconciliation. This is the type of peace that two warring nations agree upon when they come to terms of a treaty. That chasm which has separated a holy God and a sinful people is done away with. As Micah says, God has thrown the sins of the people of God into the depths of the sea, so that as far as the east is from the west, no more will the Lord remember your sins, Christian. This is the peace that Jesus has brought in his humanity. Jesus here is declaring an absolution, a declaration of pardon, similar to the one we recently heard, over his apostles. Jesus is reminding his apostles of the good news of his humanity. And now the rest of this passage, Jesus is seeking to assure his disciples of the good news of this same humanity. And he does this by calling them to see, to touch, to listen, and to proclaim. So notice what the reaction is of these disciples. They're startled. They're afraid. Who is this individual who has just appeared before our eyes? Is this a phantom? Is this a spirit? And why is he greeting us? They're troubled. They're afraid. Now, what's Jesus' reaction? Why do doubts arise in your hearts and your minds? Why are you troubled? Jesus, again, could have just rebuked his disciples, but he is patient with them. He cares about their assurance. He cares about their doubts. And so Jesus says, look at me. See. See my flesh. See my hands. See my feet. He may be pointing to his nail wounds. He may be pointing to the hands that the disciples would have been very familiar with, the hands that he had spent hours teaching with in the last three years. Jesus says, touch me. 
Spirits and phantoms, they don't have elbows and wrists and shoulders. Be assured of my resurrected humanity. But Jesus continues. He says, is there anything to eat here? He asks for broiled fish. And, and the disciples give him this, this broiled fish, and they witness the resurrected Jesus eat, uh, eat an, eating a meal. Now, for reasons we don't have time to go into, I don't think Scripture uh, teaches that resurrected bodies need food and water to survive. I believe food and water are unique to this present creation. And so if Jesus is not eating because he's hungry, if Jesus is not eating because he needs this uh, for sustenance, for daily bread, then why is Jesus asking for broiled fish? For the sake of the disciples' assurance. This is testimony to Jesus' condescension to his disciples in their weakness, in their doubts. Jesus is willing to eat a meal in order to assure him, assure them of his humanity. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I can see how this would be good news for the apostles, but when, when I am experiencing doubts, I can't just look at Jesus and see his nail, uh, nail wounds. I can't, I can't reach out and touch his elbow or his wrists. I can't witness Jesus eating a meal of fish before my very eyes. And so how, how am I, how are we assured of this good news of Jesus' humanity. Remember that Jesus, before he leaves this earth in his ascension, he institutes two sacraments. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Things that we experience with our senses. We see them, we touch them, we taste them, we smell them. And he instituted these sacraments to be celebrated and enjoyed during this time between the two advents. This time in which he is bodily absent from his people. Now as we considered last week in our catechism service, before one can uh, consider the particular sacraments of baptism or the Lord's Supper, one needs to first step back and think about their theology of the sacraments in general. Specifically, who is the doer in the sacrament? I used the illustration last week of a playing field. Imagine when you go to a professional sports game, a Mariners game, a Seahawks game, Kraken game, Trailblazers game. You go there and you sort of forget about yourself, don't you? The purpose of going to a sports game is to enjoy and experience the talent, the hard work, and the skill of these players. And when you leave the game, you're not talking about yourself. You're talking about the star players. You're talking about your favorite team. And so if we think about the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper as a playing field, who's on the playing field when these sacraments are administered? Are we on the playing field? Are the sacraments an opportunity for us to demonstrate to God and the world how faithful, how righteous, how zealous we are? Or are the sacraments a time for God to condescend to us and demonstrate and remind us of his steadfast love and covenantal faithfulness to us and to our children? 
I made the argument last week that it's the latter. The sacraments are God's playing field to assure us and to nourish us, just as he does in the preaching of the word. And therefore, the sacraments are God's playing field to assure us of the good news of Jesus' humanity. And think for a moment about baptism. Baptism is all about the humanity of Christ. Jesus says in Luke 10 that when he's referring to the, the cross or his crucifixion, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Jesus refers to the cross as a baptism. Why does he do this? Well, water throughout Scripture is a symbol of judgment, which is why God destroyed the world in Noah's day through the flood, which is also why God destroyed Pharaoh and his armies through the waters of the Red Sea. And so when Jesus refers to the cross as a baptism, what Jesus is saying is that on the cross, he is taking a plunge into the watery judgment of God for the sins of the people of God. That's what the cross is all about. And so when you witness a baptism, which, uh, Lord willing, we'll be witnessing our, our daughter's baptism in a couple of weeks and, and more to come in, in 2023. When you're witnessing a baptism, you're witnessing, first and foremost, not the piety or lack thereof of the individual, but what you're witnessing is a visible proclamation of the gospel. That Jesus has fully satisfied for the sins of all of God's people on the cross. That's what you're witnessing. The Lord's Supper. You're witnessing, as that bread is broken, you're witnessing and being reminded of the fact that Christ's body was broken and raised for you. That Christ's blood was shed for you. So that you, as a child of God, will never be forsaken. So in the sacraments, Jesus is saying, see, touch, and experience the good news of my humanity. The sacraments are God's playing field to assure us that God is for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You also see in verse 44, Jesus continues, and he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that he is the telos of every single Old Testament passage. He's really saying the same thing that we considered last week when Jesus gave that, that unbelievable sermon to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, the law of Moses refers to the first five books of Scripture. The prophets refer to both the major and the minor prophets as well as the historical books. And the Psalms refer to not only the Psalms, but all the wisdom literature. Jesus is talking about the entire Old Testament. It's all about his life, his ministry, his dying and his rising. Now, I played uh, basketball both in, in high school and in college. And in high school, I achieved a certain milestone in terms of the, point, my, the points that I scored in my career and a milestone in the rebounds that I grabbed. Now, I went to a very small school, so it's not that impressive. But when I graduated, one of our statisticians for the boys' basketball team, who was a family friend and a neighbor, gave me this big poster. And it was framed on the left-hand side. It was a picture of me shooting the basketball, and it was a particular shot in which I reached this milestone of points scored. 
On the right-hand side, there's a picture of me grabbing a rebound. There's a particular rebound in which I achieved that milestone of, of rebound grab in my career. However, what was amazing about this poster is that it was like a mosaic. That when you looked closely, th these two big pictures were made up of hundreds of little pictures throughout my entire basketball career. So I could look at these little tiny individual pictures and be reminded, oh yeah, that was sophomore year in November on the road, or that was junior year in the playoffs in March. But then when I step back, all of these individual pictures played a small part in making up these two big pictures. Now this is, a, I think, a great, a great illustration to illustrate the principle that Jesus is giving us here. If you step back and look at Scripture from a zoomed-out perspective, what you see is two big pictures. On the left-hand side, you see the, the Christ of the cross. and the right-hand side, you see the Christ of the resurrection. But when you zoom in, especially in the Old Testament, you come across all of these individual historical narratives of many different characters. And we need to consider these, these narratives in their historical context. We are not to engage in allegory. But when we consider these narratives, we always need to step back and see how these individual passages play a small role in making up these big pictures of the Christ, of the cross, and the resurrection. Scripture is a mosaic in that sense. Now Jesus is saying, listen to the Old Testament. Now this is tied to our assurance because this is meant to be stabilizing for these disciples. These disciples already embraced the Old Testament as God's divine word. And Jesus is saying, you should not be alarmed by the events of these recent days, Good Friday and Easter, because the Old Testament proclaimed these very events. And it's meant to be stabilizing and ensuring for us, too. When we have our hearts and minds open and we begin to see Scripture not as a compilation of disparate texts or a compilation of moral truths and maxims, but rather as one unified story that proclaims the same message from every page, when we begin to recognize this principle that Jesus is unfolding for us, we step back and say, although there are human authors, there has to be a divine architect behind the pages of Holy Writ. And thus Jesus is saying, listen, listen, and be assured of the good news of Jesus' humanity. Well, in verse 46, G, uh, uh, verse 46 is structured in the original language around three infinitives. And these three infinitives are to suffer, to rise, and to proclaim. That's how Luke is summarizing verse 46 and the life of Christ. To suffer, to rise, to proclaim. Now, I want to focus now on that third infinitive, to proclaim. Jesus is on the eve of his ascension, and he's assuring his disciples here that even though he will be bodily absent after he ascends into heaven, don't think that he's rising to heaven to take a nap. Jesus is still going to be at work building his church and his kingdom through the proclamation of the word. This is what he's telling his disciples. Notice that Jesus says that this proclamation is going to go to the nations. Now, when the disciples read the Old Testament, especially those passages about the nations being blessed, they thought that the nations were going to come to Jerusalem. 
But Jesus isn't saying the nations are going to Jerusalem. He's saying Jerusalem is going to go to the nations. And we see in Luke's second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, one of the structuring devices that Luke uses in that book is this phrase, and the word multiplied, and the word grew. Which is reminding us that in Acts, it's still the incarnate Christ who is building his church through the proclamation of the word. Now notice also in verse 49, we read, And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What is this promise of the Father? The Holy Spirit. Now notice the Trinitarian character of this verse. The Spirit is both the promise of the Father whom Jesus sends. So the reason why in the Nicene Creed we confess that, Jesus, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son is because of verses like this. The Spirit is the promise of the Father whom Jesus sends. Here Jesus is uniting the ministry of the Word with the ministry of the Spirit. They exist in a harmonious relationship. The Word is only effective by the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit ordinarily only works through the Word. That's the relationship that we learn that exists between these two entities. We see the ministry of the Spirit foreshadowed for us in here, here in Luke chapter 24. So for instance, look with me at verse 45. We read that Jesus opened up the minds, or opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Again, who's the doer in this, in this verse? Jesus. Jesus opened their minds. And this word for open is the same word that, that, that's then used in verse 30 and 31. So if you look with me at verse 30 and 31, we read, or, um, verse 31, And their eyes, these two disciples who encountered Christ in, in, on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Again, notice the passive voice there. The disciples' eyes were opened. And then verse 32, the disciples say, Did not our hearts burn within us when Christ opened up the scriptures for us? Now this word that's rendered in the English open is the same word in the original language in verse 31, verse 32, and verse 45. So we have this dynamic going on that is not enough just for the scriptures to be opened in clarity. And boldness, we also need our eyes and our hearts to be opened. And in Luke's gospel, eyesight is a metaphor for the recognition of salvation. So apart from Jesus opening our hearts and our minds, we will necessarily reject the truth of Scripture. As Paul says, we by nature suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Or as Jesus says in John 3, that unless you are born again, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. We see this principle at work again in, in Luke's second volume. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Timothy are planting the Philippian church, and they go to uh, the river in Philippi, and they preach the gospel to these women. And we learn that some reject that gospel and some embrace it. Lydia is one of those individuals who embraces the gospel. Now, what separates Lydia from all those other women who rejected the gospel? Well, Luke tells us. He says that the Lord opened her heart to receive the word that Paul gave her. 
The same word in the original language that's used here in Luke chapter 24, 45, verse 31, and verse 32. So as we can see, Jesus here is reminding his disciples that although he will be bodily absent during this time between his two advents, be assured that he is still at work building his church and his kingdom, not only through his word, but also through his spirit. And so he's telling his disciples to proclaim, to proclaim the repentance and forgiveness of sins. In Congregation of Christ, this is really what we seek uh, to have be our bread and butter here at, at GHURC. We are intentionally seeking to be a, a church that centers upon the word and the sacraments. Now, Christ never said that he would build his church through elaborate children's ministries or hip youth groups or dopamine-releasing worship sets or grand cathedrals, stained-glass windows, vestments, and incense. He said that he would build his church through the ministry of the Word and the sacraments made effective by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we've reflected upon the last couple of weeks, the main way in which you as an individual will grow in love, charity, faith, and conviction over the long haul, is not primarily through your private acts of spiritual disciplines, however beneficial and helpful they may be, but primarily through tethering yourself to the ministry of a local church who seeks to proclaim Christ in all of the scriptures and administers the sacraments as God's playing field to assure God's people of the good news of Jesus' humanity. So this Christmas Day, Congregation of Christ, let us see let us touch, let us listen, let us proclaim, and be assured of the good news of Jesus' humanity. Let us pray.